Welcome to this edition of The Technology Pill, a podcast that looks at how technology is reshaping our lives every day and exploring the different ways that governments and companies use tech to increase their power. I am Gus Hossain. I'm the Executive Director of Privacy International, and I'm joined by Caitlin. But only briefly. <laughs> I'm popping in at the beginning to say hello, and then I will be popping out again and saying goodbye. <laughs> So today's topic of discussion is NSO Group. For those of you who haven't seen the excellent expositions in large media outlets such as The Guardian recently, NSO Group is an Israeli technology firm primarily known for its proprietary spyware Pegasus, which is capable of remote zero-click surveillance of smartphones. Now, we took that definition from Wikipedia, just like any college student would. But let's just disentangle some of that. So an Israeli firm, which means it operates within a very specific jurisdiction and can export its technology to practically anywhere on the planet because it's a different regime of export controls. So Israeli technology firm. Second, they sell proprietary spyware. Spyware is this idea that something can be done to your device, that all of a sudden your device is not under your control alone, but somebody else's and that it is spying on you. And then third within that Wikipedia definition is that it's capable of remote zero-click surveillance of smartphones. What that means is... NSO Group knows the vulnerabilities in the smartphone's operating systems and applications to the point where your device could get hacked without you actually having done anything. So if you go back to the old days and the whole idea, don't click attachments, don't open this link, because if you do those things, then you will be hacked. The idea of a zero-click surveillance is that you don't need to do anything that the vulnerability and the exploit of that vulnerability is such that if you are targeted, your device will just be compromised. It's quite extraordinary. And NSO Group claim they only sell the technology to governments. <laughs> yes. So governments can buy this technology to target people's devices and steal data, even listen to conversations. NSO Group claims that this is only ever used to target terrorists and criminals. And as we'll discuss, often these people turn out to be activists and journalists. Yeah, as I'm sure you'll imagine, we have a lot of concerns about hacking by governments, whether or not they're buying NSO technology. Hacking is the most secretive form of surveillance. You don't know if it's happening and it has access to the most invasive data you can imagine. If someone comes into your house, they're supposed to have a warrant and you'll know that they've come into your house. Hacking secretive, it's invasive and it's super scalable. You can hack a lot of people much faster than you can physically enter their homes. Yeah, just over a year ago, we did a podcast about a court when we had in the UK that regulated how the UK government could conduct hacking. Because in the way that the language of the law up until our case declared that, that they could actually hack all the devices at a citywide level if they so chose to, because the law was that permissible. And the capabilities of the UK government are so advanced that they could possibly do that. So it's important to regulate these things at both the technical and legal layer. Now, NSO Group is probably the most famous 
company of this nature. There are many companies out there, but NSO Group has had the most written about them because of the phenomenal work by many organizations and press organizations out there, but particularly Citizen Lab, which is a outfit at the University of Toronto that has focused extraordinary amount of energies and brilliance towards NSO Group and its technical details and its capacities. And they've also worked out how to find out if a specific device has actually been hacked using NSO's technology. And we'll talk through some of these examples throughout the podcast. Super soon, Gus is going to be joined by two excellent guests who are extremely well qualified to talk about NSO Group. So we've got Dr. Elias Siotitsa, who leads all of our government exploitation work, and Edna Manovich, who's our advocacy director, both of whom have been working on government hacking and NSO Group specifically for longer than I've been at PI, I think, definitely. <laughs> One note, this podcast was recorded with Russian troops massing on the border of Ukraine, but when they had yet to enter Ukraine. We appreciate that since we made this, there has been a huge shift in geopolitics. If you're looking for something to do to help the people of Ukraine, please consider donating to a humanitarian relief organization working on the ground. We know and we like ICRC, but there are many other organizations who are doing incredible work directly helping people in Ukraine. Okay, so what do we know about NSO groups? Essentially, it's been heftily covered by the media over the past couple of years. And this is almost entirely due to the extraordinary work by Citizen Lab that has been able to identify the technology being used against individuals across the world. And that's for privacy and surveillance geeks. That is, that's the ultimate story, isn't it? That is, you can identify somebody who's been harmed. Eli, I imagine in all the work that we do on government surveillance, this is like what we keep on hoping because surveillance is this invisible thing, right? You're absolutely right, Gus. That is uh, our biggest fear and what we have been for years underlying with regard to government hacking, especially, which is what NSO Group with Pegasus and software that they're doing. Uh, It imposes unique threats to our privacy and security exactly because they can, undetected, quietly infiltrate our phones that contain some of the most intimate information of our lives. For some of us, it will contain more intimate information than our homes at the moment, from health to pictures to contacts. And they can copy all this information, take everything. They can activate our microphones, our cameras, and we won't even be aware of it. And for accountability and oversight, the ability to trace when someone is targeted, when someone is surveilled, is essential for that person to be able then to ask for redress, to contest whether that was legal. Otherwise, there is nothing we can do. We always will live just with the fear that this is uh, what is happening and not being able to confirm whether our suspicions are true or not. It's Enough to turn someone crazy, I think. This constant feeling that you're targeted and you're not able to prove it. And that's the virtue of what Citizen Lab, this Canadian outfit, has done, is that they've been able to identify a number of cases where people have been targeted. And and so, Edin, can you talk us through some of those examples? 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's so important because remember when NSO Group was first starting to be talked about, I think it was like eight, nine years ago. It was just one of a number of companies. I think what stood them out was the fact that they had this attack known as a baseband exploit, which basically meant that, say, someone was targeting you, they wanted to hack into your phone, you wouldn't even need to open like a malicious attachment. There would be essentially no way to really protect yourself as opposed to some of the other companies that were out there. And for years, this kind of rumbled on. There was more and more revelations about them. But what I think is so important is trying to put human faces to these stories because essentially without a human element to it, then it's very difficult to get the broader public engaged into it to kind of really... Uh, help people understand the harms and therefore why we need to take action towards them. But honestly, we've kind of done a wee bit of research into some of the people that have been targeted by NSO just over the last few months. And there's just so many people and so many human stories of this. Uh, so I think maybe one way of explaining it is to focus on one country. So if you look at Mexico, it's, I think, one of the countries where some of the most targets are located in. And we've worked with a number of amazing organizations that are based in Mexico. And over the years, several of these stories have come to light through their work and through the work of Citizen Lab and through the work of investigative reporters as well. So just to kind of name a few, one of their leading journalists, who's also a broadcaster, was targeted, I think, over something like 20 times by NSO spyware on her phone, as well as targeting her. It seemed as though whoever was using the technology then moved on to her son, who was actually a minor, to try and get information from them when they had apparently failed to do so from her. There was instances, for example, of human rights groups who are working to investigate corruption. Uh, so, for example, there was quite a famous incident in Mexico where I think some 42 students had gone missing and it's believed that that was at the hands of a corrupt government body in league with cartels and a human rights group investigating them was actually targeted. And other instances, for example, where just campaigners for uh, soda tax, you know, like just something like that you would maybe perhaps consider fairly uncontroversial, targeted again with NSO spyware. So I think if Mexico is like a reflection of what's happening across the rest of the world, uh, you know, it's a really kind of think, scary place to be in. We recognize our right to privacy when it's gone. That's when you really understand what uh, this right is all about. And, and unfortunately, the revelations and around uh, NSO Group is a stark example on how essential privacy is for the enjoyment of every single right in our lives and how actually people can be targeted and disappear and silenced by such interferences. Yeah, exactly. So one of the kind of recent stories that came out again, I think this was only in the last couple of weeks, was a campaigner based in Bahrain who was targeted with NSO spyware. But what makes this case quite interesting was that I think some 11 years ago, he was actually also targeted with another spyware made by a German UK company called Finfisher. In that instance, what had transpired was that uh, audio and video recording of him and his wife in private was threatened to be leaked online and used against them by the government authorities. So he was essentially blackmailed. He refused to uh, give in to their demands and that video was leaked online essentially to try and destroy his reputation. And then 11 years later, we have again targeting by similar type of spyware. 
And you can imagine how many cases people would give in. Is it that this has always been widespread and it's only recently coming to light? Like, Because what is the cost to governments who undertake this type of surveillance? Like, it might, They have to pay for a contract with one of these companies that provide these services. But then after that, isn't it easier to hack somebody's device and put a tail on them like we did in the 1950s or get an informant? Um, if your device is everything, then yeah, just use whatever you can get off the shelf, right? This is not the social contract we agreed on. <laughs> <laughs> also, movies would be exactly. a lot shorter. Right? You know, if there's a movie and it's, okay, let's, let's hack the phone. Oh, okay, got the person, that's it. And so recently, it's finally hit a fever pitch, I guess, around NSO Group, because from the reporting, it's a little bit hard to decipher. But essentially, the U.S. government woke up and realized that State Department officials had been targeted or had been included on a targeting list. And this was because of a purported sale or an attempted sale to the Ugandan government, where all of a sudden, U.S. officials were being targeted. And this is like before we go down too deep the rabbit hole of NSO Group, and it's important that we do focus on NSO Group, but NSO Group and these types of technologies made by companies are essentially the tool of poorer governments. That is, when you are the UK government, if you're the intelligence agency of the UK government, you're not using NSO Group. If you're a police agency, you might very well be using NSO Group and all these others. But like the US government, the Chinese intelligence agencies, they're not buying these off-the-shelf things necessarily. They're developing their own technologies. And so we shouldn't just imagine all these examples that we're hearing is that that's the extent of government surveillance by hacking. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. But I think there's only a kind of handful of these agencies that have enough resources, have enough money to buy like the very best scientists and engineers who are able to come up with this code. And there's, I think, very real uh, concerns when it comes to buying this type of off-the-shelf technology. So if you are the FSB or someone like that, do you really want to be inviting so-called former agents of intelligence agencies? But obviously, when you leave an intelligence agency, the question is, do you ever really leave? So you're inviting them to essentially plug software into your infrastructure and then to have essentially insight into your systems and who you're targeting. I think that's, for an intelligence agency, that'd be quite a sensitive thing to get into. So I think you're absolutely right. Your kind of top tier agencies would avoid that. Uh, let's not forget that the biggest democracy in the world, India, the Supreme Court is running an independent investigation into whether the Indian government has used the NSO Group's products. The Indian government themselves have neither confirmed nor denied using it, so we're not sure. And with uh, such kind of power, it's true, uh, you can be anywhere in the world and they can target you from anywhere. So the fact that it's been reported that at least seven Indian uh, journalists and political descendants have been targeted, and that has been confirmed with research from about thousand phone numbers that were uh, listed as potential targets of NSO group from the recent revelations. It's true that it could be someone else, but these were people that were in the government opposition, journalists that were criticizing government policies. So we don't know. Yeah. 
but we don't know, but <laughs> we, we have our suspicions. Yeah, I was reading recently about India, uh, where there's another piece of software that was discovered that was planting evidence on people's devices, basically incriminating them and being targeted at opponents of the Indian government in particular. But these things are so hard to verify and you do need forensic experts. And this is where we get into the challenge of being an NSO group. First, the very powerful intelligence agencies of the world don't necessarily need you because they're doing their own science. They're doing their own hacking and finding their own mechanisms. But NSO group does require extraordinary capabilities because what they actually do is not just run-of-the-mill type of hacking of finding an insecure device and doing something to it. They have the capacity to attack a relatively secure device. And when we say relatively secure, a relatively secure service, we're talking about Apple or Facebook services where these companies hire some of the best brains on the planet, including from intelligence agencies, to help secure their, their services. And, and NSO Group and other companies like NSO Group and other intelligence agencies, they're able to find vulnerabilities and exploit them and then use that to essentially sell a service or a product. And when Apple and Facebook and all these other companies uncover the fact that this has been happening, they're impressively starting to get a little annoyed. And so we've seen legal action coming out of Apple against NSO Group, although quite late to the game. And uh, I think it was two years ago, WhatsApp yeah. took legal action against NSO Group, again in California, to say this is not the way things are supposed to be done. So it's nice to see that these companies are taking action. Equally, it kind of explains how hard this is. These are trillion-dollar companies, or at least in the case of Apple. And what they have to resort to when it comes to these types of companies is to take legal action against them because there's no perfecting the science of security of their devices. And so they have to take both legal and technical measures in order to stop these companies and others like them. So... Maybe we could just focus on NSO Group just for a moment. Edin, can you talk us through the firm itself and how it became this nefarious actor that is now spread across newspapers around the world? Yeah, like I said, we kind of first heard about them maybe like eight, nine years ago um, because they were going around essentially advertising this uh, hacking technique, which essentially didn't need any form of social engineering. So nobody had to open the attachment that with like the malware on it so we kind of heard about them from there but obviously it's very intransparent industry we don't know to be perfect to be honest very much about many of these types of companies who are out there nso group we do know a fair bit now but that's purely because of investigative journalists and researchers who have been able to track them who've been able to spend resources on them and this is just one surveillance company so like i say based in israel i think it has something like 60 customers in something like 40 countries and from the recent revelations that have come out through the research by forbidden stories amnesty tech guardian and other in the consortium it looks as though it's targeting people in something like 45 countries around the world so they have a list which we assume to be a list of potential numbers that could be targeted for surveillance and they are spread out across something like 45 countries and there's 50,000 of them. So they're based in Israel but these 
companies like NSO Group are owned by holding companies or investment companies? What is that structure? What their structure allows them to do is super interesting because you can have Israel confirm and pledge that they are checking every export NSO Group does. But in the meantime, NSO Group can have a subsidiary in Bulgaria, Cyprus, to name a few random examples or not so random, and then doing their exports from there. And so then you have zero control. And uh, that is increasingly also what we've seen even like within the EU, what countries are doing, where they will go through a subsidiary company not based in the EU to do an export to a country where they wouldn't have been able to do so through the EU channels. And uh, we looked into the NSO group structure with Amnesty International and SOMO, which looked into its complicated structure. It took us months to figure it out, and we are still having gaps. And uh, to be able to hold the company accountable, it's extremely complicated. And figure out in which jurisdiction you should be bringing a claim. Our hope is that it can help researchers, activists, journalists, those that they are looking into the company to be able to identify which is the jurisdictions they, they should be looking into and where they could be building claims. I just want to read this uh, wonderful email that Citizen Labs sent to all the people that sign up to Citizen Labs mailers. And I strongly suggest if you're interested in these issues, go to Citizen Lab and sign up and even support their work. They're just, they're phenomenal at the research that they do. And the director of Citizen Lab, Ron Diebert, he was telling the story of some of the, the individuals who had been targeted by governments using NSO Group's technology. Some of them were anonymous victims. And he was talking about one victim in particular, a Saudi women's rights activist, and how uh, Citizen Lab got access to her device and were able to identify the fact that it had been targeted by NSO Group's Pegasus capability. Because they were able to do this analysis, of this hack. They were able to identify that her Apple device had been compromised using a vulnerability that Apple didn't know about. And so Citizen Lab, as a result of this, worked with Apple to identify this vulnerability. And so this is the, the sign-off line from Ron Diebert's email. He says, her actions helped enhance the digital security of more than a billion Apple users worldwide. If you're one of those people that owns a MacBook, an iPhone, or an Apple Watch, you can thank Lujane Al-Hathul for her bravery. And that's how he signs off his email. He doesn't say support Citizen Lab, Citizen Lab rocks or anything like that. Because I do think it's one of those beautiful uh, moments in, in our sector where you saw a report from Citizen Lab that said, hey, there's this vulnerability. Hey, it was used in bad ways. And then on your, if you own an iPhone, you're getting an update at that very moment from Apple saying, please update your operating system because there's a vulnerability was found and they've patched it. And all of a sudden, they've moved the ball a little bit further on the, on the security and exploitation game. But unfortunately, and this is where I'm a little bit more critical of the, the sector more generally, we have very much focused so much on NSO Group. It almost feels like 
uh, victory in this game is if we shut down NSO Group. And all the media coverage has focused on NSO Group. And it hasn't looked at whether it's the other firms or hasn't looked at the other governments who have other capabilities or just hacking more generally. But Eden, you've been here before. We've seen these companies come and go. It was, as you mentioned, Finn Fisher, say, uh, eight years ago, that obsessed everybody saying, we got to go after Finn Fisher. We got to shut them down. And we were part of that. We did our fair share. And you were also part of the NSO group chase for a very long time. And as Ilya said, we've also just recently done work on the structure of uh, NSO group. But the win doesn't come with shutting down NSO group, does it? No, absolutely. And I think like there's a kind of tension here because in any good campaigning to try and get the message out there, you need like um, example, you need a actor and you need its impact on humans. And therefore you need to be able to tell that story of why change is necessary. So you have to use examples like this to essentially make a broader, more structural change. And we have seen that to some extent. So some of the actions that have been taken, for example, at the EU level, where it's, you know, the recent report by the Data Protection Authority said that the type of software produces, not just NSO groups, should be banned from the EU. And for example, the, in the US, some of the authorities that have looked into the spyware industry have named not just NSO group, but broader amounts of companies also. So really, I think that's the game trying to essentially use NSO group as a story and as a lesson of why the broader industry itself needs better regulating. Yeah. And that's that's the progress that's been made in the last 10 years. So like 10 years ago, when a colleague first told me that this was possible, and I'll admit my complete ignorance, like I, I'd known about government hacking, but I always thought it was either obvious, which is like, oh, I clicked on the wrong link and now I've been hacked or it was so invisible as to be impossible to identify because it was done by the, the powerful agencies. But then we started hearing about these companies like Finn Fisher. And then when I was explaining what they do and how it's possible, my mind kind of did explode. And then right after that, Snowden's disclosures come out and you hear in greater detail how these governments are able to do this type of hacking. And we start our litigation, we start targeting the companies, we start doing our investigations. And yet at that time, I will also remember that industry just couldn't care less. We were trying to get the big companies to care about these issues, but they weren't really getting involved in the in the spyware game at all. But I think now you look at where it is 10 years later, where you have broad media coverage. I have people approaching me finally saying, hey, you know what? I get what you guys work on. Uh, now I understand. Because Ed, and you're right. Like these, these individual cases, they are compelling. But also it helps that Apple and WhatsApp are taking their legal action. And finally, industry is saying, no, you can't do this anymore. So I think this has been a long journey here. But even still, more legal measures are needed. This this isn't going to get fixed by building a more perfect iPhone or a more secure operating system. And it's not going to get fixed just by shutting down whether it's one company or five companies. One thing that has been hidden behind uh, this chase of that one evil company is the contradiction in government hacking capabilities and powers. The fact that actually, based on our, our right to privacy, governments have a positive obligation to actively take measures to ensure that our privacy is protected. And that should include 
their obligation, if they find a security vulnerability, they should take measures to shield us from the threat. What actually they're doing with government hacking is the exact opposite. They are identifying vulnerabilities, whether it's NSO groups or a powerful intelligence agency or some other smaller company, some other simpler technique. They're finding a vulnerability and they're exploiting until someone detects it and calls it out and then the companies will correct it. And that is inherently problematic. And this is something we are not discussing enough. All these practices are completely untransparent, undetected, underreported, and that is highly problematic. So indeed, if as a lawyer, I would argue we should first fight for banning uh, government hacking altogether. If we don't achieve that, well, the next big thing is let's regulate it as best as we can and ensuring that uh, government agencies know when they're allowed to use it, under what legal basis, to target whom, to have a judge authorizing their actions and supervising their actions. These are just the beginning of what safeguards we need to have in place to ensure that our human rights are protected, our lives are protected. Yeah, it kind of speaks to a broader point. It's like, like the very term hacking itself is quite subjective. I mean, some of the open source techniques that I've seen researchers use, you could essentially describe as hacking. And NSO Group is one spyware company. There's more spyware companies. If most people in the world, they don't have access to high-end, expensive iPhones that you need many of these most advanced techniques to get into. Many people don't even update on a regular basis, but they don't really understand like why that's important for security. And then, you know, there's all types of other techniques to get into people's devices that are essentially the same as hacking. Or you could just have a police officer ask you to hand your phone over and to put the password. I think most people would in that scenario. So the, that is the big question. Like, how do you uh, most effectively address all those concerns? And how do you? That's very perfectly put. Like going back to what Elia said, like your your mobile phone probably has more of your data than your whole home does. And yet, you know, back in the 1700s, we, we saw the emergence of, of legal regimes saying that the government shall not cross your home if you were lucky enough to have a home. And, you know, that's a Fourth Amendment and, and case law in the United Kingdom. And then you started seeing international human rights treaties apply all these things to these possessions, but then they didn't reach the virtual because governments could get away with it. That is, they weren't seen as crossing the threshold of your home. They could do all this remotely. And then when they did get caught out, whether it's by disclosures or as you say, Ed, and they grab your phone and get the data off it, they're still very reluctant to apply any safeguards to it. And then there's that very important inequality you pointed out, Ed, which is the NSO group type technologies and the intelligence agencies and, and they're exploiting vulnerabilities, that entire sexy game that we love to tell stories about, that applies to the top 1%. That applies to people who have the latest iPhone, the latest Android, and who might patch their systems as often as an update comes down. The reality of the world is that security is much more fragmented and much more unequal. And most people on this planet, if they do have access to digital devices, they are already inherently insecure. And that's why for a number of years, we ran campaigns 
API to try to get the mobile phone industry to secure their devices without regard to how old they are or um, which sector of the market they're advertised to. And it's not just rich people who, who should be protected, but all their users. And their level of resistance from the industry was remarkable. And I think, Elia, you have the latest update on the work that we've been doing on that around um, securing these types of devices. I mean, we launched last year our uh, Best Before Date campaign and our primary target there, we were quietly just uh, reaching out to companies and asking them simple questions. You release that model, where do you indicate not only when this hardware will stop being supported, the, the actual device that we see, but also the software, all the, all the system that helps it operate. And in most of the cases, there is no clear indication. You buy a phone and three years later, they might stop supporting it. That means that when the next security patch, as we call it, like the next correction of a vulnerability in the phone comes and the company releases a new update, you will not be able to get it and you will have to buy a new phone. And this is both financially for most people in the world and environmentally, let's say, not beneficial. <laughs> and uh, while we, we companies engage and they are uh, trying to commit to a certain extent uh, that they will be taking into account these concerns and that they will be taking steps, this still we think is not enough. And so our next stop for this year are going to be regulators. Uh, we want to push uh, the European Union, the EU, to ensure that in the next legislative framework, there are specific obligations for companies to actually uh, maintain uh, and update the devices they're selling for longer periods of time. And actually, when you buy a device, to be able to know on the spot when you will have to stop using it, which right now, for most of the cases, I mean, you don't even think about it. You buy the model and you're like happy you got it in a good price. The fact that it was four models behind and it will soon go out of use, you don't think, nobody tells you, you wouldn't know. Now, I, I, I remember celebrating when um, just a couple of weeks ago when Samsung released their flagship, new flagship phones. They issued a press release that got covered remarkably by media about the fact that they're committing to, I think it was five years of security updates. And so when I shared this with colleagues at PI, saying, hey, this is great, isn't it? The immediate response was, does it apply to all of their phones? And the answer is no, it only applies to the flagship. And so companies are starting to recognize that this is a, uh, a selling tool, but they don't want to take on any, any burdens to actually deliver this for their entire user base, which is insulting. Okay, just to bring this all to a close, like, you know, we can get despondent about hacking and its invisibility and the, the rise and fall of the companies that capture people's attention and, yeah, a whole new generation come along. But I think from what you're both saying, I'm, I'm hearing the things that make our jobs uniquely 
challenging, which is at one moment in time, we're dealing with some of the titans, like the trillion dollar companies. And then we're dealing with companies who we can't even understand their corporate structure well enough. Then we're dealing with intelligence agencies who are powerful enough to not worry about these things. But then we're dealing with governments, say the US government, all of a sudden being so offended that technology like NSO groups technology is being used against US government officials. And so, you know, privacy advocates see the world through a very particular lens. Particular is a, a gentle way of putting it, which is we don't see good guys and bad guys. We just see a bunch of just doing whatever they can to get access to whatever they shouldn't have access to. And just going back to what Eden was saying, the difference between, uh, say, Russia doing hacking and, and Russia buying hacking off the shelf, they wouldn't buy hacking off the shelf because by bringing a firm in to help you do this, you're basically inviting the intelligence agencies that these people used to work for into your own. And so you see this balance of powers almost that emerges between the surveillance industry who are always going to be used by the less capable governments, the powerful governments who will get offended by these small actors being used against their officials. And we have this beautiful thing that's actually starting to take place, as Ilya, you were identifying, which is for so long, these powerful intelligence agencies were coveting these, these vulnerabilities and these exploits and not seeking to improve the security of the infrastructure. And now they're recognizing that because of the industry coming along and competing on their capabilities, that they actually have to start getting better at this. So is it possible at the end of this long tirade of mine, is it possible in five years time, just going back, say, five years where we didn't have Apple, we didn't have WhatsApp, we didn't have the State Department getting annoyed in the US that they're being targeted. Is it possible in five years time, this will be a much better world when it comes to hacking and insecurity and exploitation? Well, if you hadn't put this five-year deadline, maybe I would have been <laughs> more positive. <laughs> but no, you're, I think you're absolutely right. Every day that passes and we are able to bring this to light, that we are becoming more aware that uh, the relevant actors are coming to the table, either voluntarily or forced, to discuss those issues and to uh, find solutions and to identify the gaps this is definitely bring us a step closer to a better place. And uh, no matter uh, how the threats increase every day as the technological capabilities increase every day, at the same time, the technological capabilities to protect us also increase, but also our familiarity with the threats increases and we can still take steps. I think we are already past the uh, old nothing to hide kind of narrative and where people are actually demanding to have their privacy protected and they consider that a reasonable expectation. What do you think, Adam? Yeah, absolutely. Honestly, it's been years since I've had to deal with nothing to hide, nothing to fear. I don't know if that's just like people have given up like trying to get sense <laughs> out of me, but uh, I <laughs> I, I, I genuinely do think there has been like a change in broad attitude around these kind of issues. Um, I mean, even an example like NSO Group, a few, a couple of years ago, even, it looked like an impossible task to try and get change here. It now almost looks inevitable. And I think the real lesson here is that 
a coordinated campaign of good people who are doing good work for the right reasons can affect change in this world. I think that's something that has been quite optimistic. That's a beautiful way of any like that. May may any struggle for justice on this planet have the resources that this issue has had, which was organizations like Citizen Lab uncovering these capabilities, investigative journalists across the world tracking down companies and victims and telling their stories, and trillion dollar companies getting annoyed and the occasional self-righteous government officials saying, how dare this be done against us? Yeah, this is the perfect story. I say that though, and just to you know, return us to a proper tenor of PI depression, we are on the precipice of war. And I'm not just talking about what's going on with Russia and Ukraine, but it's also the fact that the East-West divide is going to become more stark. And the next 10 years, we're going to see a very different tenor to all of these things. And um, I think we're going to miss that era where we were technologically codependent. And if we do divide between a Chinese tech infrastructure versus a Western tech infrastructure, there's going to be more problems and more failures and more, well, takedowns, let's say than we've seen before. So I think, yeah, they're, they're, we're at a fork in the road right now. And if the world is the the 2010 to 2020 world, then we're going to end up in a good place. If it is the 2020 to 2022 world, it could very well be very dirty. But we'll have had all the lessons from these years of campaigning on this. Cool. Thank you very much, both of you. And uh, I look forward to talking to you in five years' time when we're just resting on our laurels of having solved this problem. <laughs> Take care. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening. You can get involved with any of the topics that we raise, particularly around government hacking, by visiting our website at privacyinternational.org. You can like and subscribe to this podcast on the various platforms you use. It's also available on our website at privacyinternational.org. Generally, come to our website, sign up to mailings, and do other things with us as we hold these very dangerous companies and governments to account. We're also on Twitter, Instagram, Mastodon, YouTube, and Facebook. Music is courtesy of Sepia. This podcast is produced by Max Burnell for Privacy International.